Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning. Wherever you are, whenever you are, welcome back to our mini-series here on the book of Daniel. Now, up until this point, we've covered the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, which is mostly historical narrative. It is biography of Daniel and his friends, you know, Rakshak and Benny. And it covers the period of exile. Uh, if you could turn with me, by the way, while I introduce this to Daniel chapter 7, if you got a Bible handy, that would be fantastic. But up until this point, Daniel's life has been a catalog of here's how he lived and here's some of the highlights of his life during the 70 or so, give or take a few years, years that he was in Babylon. And now, towards the end of his life, Daniel the prophet is now compiling this whole book here, and he is starting to write down now the section on hard prophecy. We're not talking just historical narratives, here's what happened in my life, but here are the visions and the messages given by God to Daniel for the future of mankind. Now, as we get into this, keep in mind that it, there's a lot of mystery Teach your heart to say, I don't know, if something is unidentified or if we just don't know. But more so than that, keep in mind the main point of the passage. And we're going to be covering this, the main point of all of this, the big message that Daniel wants his readers to see that is more important than a lot of historical details. Especially once we start getting into like the prophecy of the 70 weeks and everything like that. People go absolutely insane trying to decipher exact dates. When Daniel doesn't care that you know the exact date of X, Y, or Z event. He wants you to know what happens and what to look forward to. And we're going to try our best to identify it as we begin now. Let's go ahead and, and I apologize if I seem a little frosty. I went to a Bible college where we went nuts trying to figure out a lot of uh, Daniel's words here. And then I get to seminary and it's made ten times more clear than I, I had ever seen before. So hopefully we can dispel some of the confusion. Again, apologies for if I seem just a, a little prickly here. But anyway, going now to Daniel chapter 7, let's go ahead and start in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And as it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. 
After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so let's stop right there for a moment. And we see here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, this is in the last year or so of Belshazzar's reign. Belshazzar being co-regent with his father, King Nabonidus. We covered last time how Nabonidus ran off to go find this other god, uh, presuming maybe that this was what Nebuchadnezzar, his father, was speaking of when he talked about there being only one really big god. Maybe. We can speculate on that, but we know that this is the first year of Belshazzar, possibly the last. And now he has this vision. Now it's going to be interpreted, so we're going to have the big point here uh, that Daniel wants us to know, that God wants us to know. But after we look at the interpretation the Bible gives us, we're then going to talk about some of the issues concerning the, well, direct application of certain details. So let's go ahead and continue in verse 15 here of Daniel chapter 7. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now, keep that in mind. That verse there, chapter 7, verse 17 and 18, is highlight, underscore, uh, put it in italics and bold it in all caps. This is the point of the vision. The four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. 
but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. But now, Daniel asks a little bit more. He, again, he's only human like us. He sees these things and if the, if the person he's talking to that knows the vision says, all right, here's the point, that's what it means. Well, Daniel asks for more. So we continue reading here in verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly horrifying, terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand, for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So, he asks this elder, this person here, and he gives him some more detail. And the first thing we see in verse 23 is that this fourth beast, it says here in verse 17 that the four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But more or less, that's, an, that's a truncated way of saying kingdom, as we see in verse 23. There shall be a fourth kingdom kingdom. The fourth beast is a kingdom, so each one of these works for that. Now, again though, the person that Daniel is talking to that knows the interpretation of the vision, as he's seeing all this unfold, he goes back and reiterates the big point. In verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdoms shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Well, great. But we're still human, aren't we? We still need to, need to, got to, got to know what are these beasts. And, well, let's humor a little bit of speculation here. We'll, we'll talk about this. Let's go real quick 
back to earlier, chapter 2 of Daniel. There is a parallel here that's important to notice. How many kingdoms are there in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2? Well, his dream. Uh, let's see here. Chapter 2, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. Now we'll, we'll read this and we'll count. The image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. 1. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle. 2. And thighs of bronze. 3. Its legs of iron. 4. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. 5. So here, Daniel gives this image. And his interpretation... Well, it's interesting to see it. Is it really five kingdoms? So in verse 36, he says, This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Okay, that's one. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, so two and three, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. So the most common explanation for this vision is Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, the Babylonian Empire, glorious Babylon, followed up by the two arms and the chest of the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Greeks, and then finally the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire becomes a divided kingdom, a kingdom that mixes strength and weakness. A good example of this is, while we understand that Rome was, they were the undisputed champs of uh, organized violence in their day, especially in their heyday. But later on, before we know it, there is an Eastern and a Western Roman Empire within about the three, late 300s, early 400s AD. Suddenly now there's two feet to Rome. There's an Eastern Emperor in Byzantium. There's a Western Emperor ruling uh, sometimes at Rome and sometimes at another city. And it's a strong empire with a powerful military and great riches. But they have these problems with various barbarian hordes, the Vandals, the Goths, the Huns, and they have such a hard time fighting them. It, it just ends up being that Rome was too big and the frontier of their empire, especially by the Danube River, was extremely vulnerable. And then the southern frontier of their empire near North Africa that too was extremely vulnerable, so the Vandals would come in and attack there. King Alaric is infamous. Attila the Hun, very infamous. And so, 
the Roman Empire itself eventually had a very mixed bag of strength and weakness. Now it is after that that the rock, unhewn, not made by human hands, breaks the whole thing down and starts a great mountain. So let's return to chapter 7 here. And what do we notice? We notice four beasts. Uh, let's go back to chapter 7, and we'll see here in verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So four winds, four directions, four cardinal directions, northeast, southwest, everywhere. That's a common phrase in the Bible for just everywhere on earth. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, we've already identified these as kings or kingdoms. And, oh, look, there are four kingdoms mentioned in chapter 2. But let's keep reading here. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. In verse 4 it says that. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So if we go here with this kind of theory here, the parallel between chapter 2 and chapter 7, the lion would be Babylon. And Babylon clearly, they loved lion imagery uh, from their Assyrian priors. You know, uh, King Ashurbanipal of Assyria loved to have these artworks and steels made of him killing a lion with his bare hands or with nothing but a club or a knife. And so Babylon inherited that. And there was a, a large amount of lion motifs that work for it. But its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. Now what could that mean? We could have a guess that the wings are the ability to travel. You know, the empire itself was taken away during the reign of Belshazzar. So no longer can Babylon proudly bring itself to the skies, lording itself over this big empire. And, of course, that happened, but the Babylonians were made to stand like men. What does that mean? If we're seeing this, again, as parallel to chapter 2. Well, the big point here is that the Persians didn't really go about killing or dispersing all of the Babylonians. When the Medo-Persian Empire was around, they just didn't have much fighting. There was only one real battle between Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire that resulted in a Persian victory, and that was about it. At the end, right? So instead, the people of Babylon are now supposed to act like human beings instead of these lords of empire. But that's kind of just a little bit of historical speculation here. The next beast, though, in verse 5 it says, Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. So if we talk about the Persian Empire, 
again, assuming chapter 2 is a parallel to this, a bear is a sleeping giant, a sleepy, attacking, hunting kind of creature. But it can be peaceful if you don't bug it, if you don't go on its turf. So it was raised up on one side, one side being bigger than the other. Historically, this would fit the Medo-Persian Empire because the Persians dominated and controlled, for the most part, the Medes underneath them. Now, as for the ribs between its mouth, I don't exactly know how we would interpret that, but we do see that the lion had eagle's wings and the wings were plucked off. Well, if a lion had wings to fly, it would probably be by those ribs. So it is true, it, maybe this is a reference to the fact that the Medo-Persian Empire hamstrung the Babylonians. But then it is told, arise, devour much flesh. So the Persian Empire typically wasn't one for war until you start to see people like Artaxerxes III and the Fourth, who are obsessed with trying to conquer Greece. They've achieved the ancient Near Eastern Empire dream of taking over Egypt, but now it is time to fight those Spartans, it's time to try to get to Athens, um, Xerxes and Artaxerxes constantly are trying to do this over and over and over again, leading to a lot of bloodshed. But, we look at the kingdom after that. After this I looked, in verse 6, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now this again makes sense if we look at it in terms of Greece. Because when Alexander the Great takes over the entirety of the ancient Near East, A, it's extremely swift like a leopard, in four wings, he's traveling everywhere. He gets all the way out to India in the 4th century BC. He gets so far and so quick, and then after having taken all of the known world at the time, he dies. And his empire is split up between four generals, four heads to the leopard. It's split up between them. And then that Greek empire, where you have the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and all this other intrigue, palace intrigue, that uh, unfortunately just kind of bores me. I don't think I can really get into detail here. But it's still, during this time of divided empire, it's still considered the Greek empire. So then finally, in verse 7 it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And now we have an actual verse here that's a direct parallel to the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar has. It says here in chapter 2, um, verse 40, There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all else. And so we look back at chapter 7, It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 
ten horns. Now here's where we we can say, okay, that's probably the same empire that he's talking about from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But what does that mean? Ten horns. Is there ten mini kingdoms in Rome? Were there was it something about the the Senate? What is going on there? Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us one little horn was raised up. But what I can say is this. Ten in the Holy Scriptures is often seen as a number of completion. So this eleventh horn that rises up, this little horn, and then destroys three of the other first horns here, tells us that there is a kingdom a fourth kingdom, again, probably Rome, and it has such complete rule until one of these leaders comes up and kills three others, making its rule somewhat incomplete. But this little horn here has eyes of a man, a mouth speaking great things. I would honestly say this is, it's tempting to say now if it's speaking great things, um, blasphemous things even, speaking of itself, we read in verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So, this arrogant little horn some would say, and I've heard this theory spouted out before, that it is Caesar. Because it is after Julius Caesar dies that the line of the Caesars, the emperors, becomes so personality-driven, a kind of cult of personality, that when the early church is just starting up, well, you're told, pinch that incense throw it in the fire and worship Caesar or die. Worship the king, literally, or die. And this is hundreds of years of that. Hundreds of years of the deification of a human man. And that sounds quite a bit like a little horn that is speaking great and blasphemous things. And yes, historically speaking, as Lutherans, we do believe that the papacy occupies the office of Antichrist because for a very, very, very long time, the popes being the vicar of Christ, Antichrist being, being in the place of Christ or against Christ, well, there were popes that did both and they all claimed to be in the place of anti-Christ. So they, and they would speak with, uh, once you get to Unus Annas, I believe, the, uh, or unam sanctam, the idea that all of the world has to bend the knee to the Pope or else he basically claimed to be a god. Well, we see a little horn there. But the power of that horn is shattered. So, we could speculate that it's Caesar, we could speculate that it's the Pope. But that's not the main point of the vision here. Even if we point out that Rome was not like the empires before it, namely because Rome 
did so much more than other empires, or if we claim that the Roman Catholic Church, being descended from Rome, is not like other powers because it is a uh, governing superstructure over Europe for a long time, well, the problem is, is that the Bible doesn't say either of those things for who the little horn is. Instead, rather, we look at the word Antichrist not being here. I mean, true, Daniel doesn't have that word in his vocabulary. He's speaking in Hebrew and Aramaic. But at the same time, if the Antichrist is not specifically mentioned here, as one that very specifically tries to occupy the place of Christ or the Messiah, uh, or be against him, maybe both, we can't say that this is necessarily a final Antichrist. All we know is that at some point, whether it's already happened or will happen, this fourth beast is to be killed. Totally destroyed. Totally burned with fire. And by the way, even if this beast is the Roman Empire, that still might not have happened. Because the Roman Empire did not fall in a classical sense. The Roman Empire kind of dissolved and went dormant. And then you see it pop up again with the Holy Roman Empire. You see it with Byzantium, with the Eastern Roman Empire. You see all sorts of weird stuff going on where it's never clear if Rome actually fell. And to this day, the Roman Catholic Church bears that name, that Roman in it. And there's still many people that lay claim to being some sort of descendant or part of Rome, the Roman Empire, today. So we don't know exactly what this is getting at. But we know the point. And the point, again, is found in verse 17 and 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now, another great point here. How do those saints receive the kingdom? Well, let's take another look here at verses 13 and 14. Because this one, we understand. We know what this is. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And this is true of our Lord Jesus Christ in two senses. First, we understand that with his passion, with his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus Christ was given, after that, authority over all things. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, says it very specifically. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is most definitely true. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, let me go ahead and turn there real quick to get the exact wording. 
chapter 1, verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Since his passion, our Lord Jesus Christ, is absolutely in charge. But, when we see, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Well, where does that sound familiar? Well, let's go over here to, I believe, 1 Thessalonians here. And what does St. Paul say about Christ's second advent, the second time that he arrives here on earth? Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So it's going to be a very sudden thing, right? Hmm. But how is that going to be? The Lord himself will descend from heaven, it says in chapter 4, verse 16. With a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And, oh, look, Daniel here is saying, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, Christ, who always refers to himself over and over and over again as the son of man. The one Daniel is speaking of here in Daniel chapter 7. So, while I personally do believe that the four kingdoms mentioned with these four beasts are, it's almost plain as day, the parallels between this and chapter 2. But there are a couple holes in that way of thinking. It is true that, you know, it's not the strongest case because, um, In verse 17, the elder tells Daniel, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Now, we don't know at what time exactly this counts, right? But this means it's after Babylon, quite possibly. Maybe the the elder here is referring to Babylon as one that over the course of human history shall arise. In which case, Babylon is still that lion. But, far be it from me to say that, oh, it's the Medes and the Persians, those two that could be this, or uh, or it has to be Babylon that's the lion. Either way, that is a difficulty that's kind of hard to parse out. And second, the fourth beast continues to make war with the saints and prevail over them. Rome converted. The Roman Empire became a Christian one, so that it's really hard to justify this being Rome 100% as the fourth kingdom when, well, Constantine became a Christian. And not only did he become a Christian, 
he outlawed the other religions, more or less. He stopped public funding for the priests of Zeus and Hera and all the other fake gods and goddesses. So there's some difficulties there, but I think the strongest case goes towards those four kingdoms. However, that point there is another point that we need to look at. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Keep in mind that things aren't always going to look good for Christians. They don't look good now. They didn't look good when Christians were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. For that matter, they're probably not going to look good for a very long time. Things can be very, very difficult. But you, Daniel says, and the elder says to him, Hang on. God is going to make this right. Christ will return. So there are times of relief. Again, if we say that, yes, the, the reprieve from persecution doesn't take away Rome's position as this fourth beast, we can say there are times of reprieve and temporary victory for the saints here on earth. And then it goes back to being hard for us, and then it gets easier, and then it gets harder, and then it gets easier. We, we hope and pray for an easier time for us and our posterity. But ultimately... The big point of that is, Christ will return. He will make things right. He will stop the persecution against us and the difficulty that we have in this world of being a Christian. But now, let's go ahead. We have, uh, we have a little bit of time left. Let's go ahead and take a look here at chapter 8, which is so beautiful. This is Daniel writing uh, at about... 539 to 545 BC here and this chapter here is completely interpreted for us there is no need for speculation so I'm just going to go ahead and read it and we'll discuss it a little bit and then we'll call it a day chapter 8 starting in verse 1 in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar a vision appeared to me Daniel after that which appeared to me at the first and I saw in the vision and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was at the Ulai Canal. So he's writing this with after Belshazzar has fallen because Susa was not yet the capital of the empire. Well, Belshazzar was alive, it was Babylon. But he says he saw that he was suddenly in Susa, later on the capital of the Persian Empire. And starting now in verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And again, we see that with uh, the bear here in chapter 7, it says another, one, another beast, a second one like a bear, he was raised up on one side. One is higher than the other, and here with this ram, one horn is higher than the other. Continuing in verse 5, As I was considering, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. 
and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and for and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So historically, Daniel is told, listen, the Medeans and the Persians are going to rule for a good while, and then the Greeks are going to come, probably fed up with all these invasions, and they are going to, under Alexander, destroy the Medo-Persian Empire. 
But after that, the king of Greece, whom we know to be Alexander the Great, will die. And then four people, his generals, will become kings of their own areas after that, splitting up the kingdom. But then this one little horn shows up that, that has this great blasphemous face and is saying all these evil things. It just so happens that that would be Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Or Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. He committed blasphemous acts. And he did, in fact, rise up against God himself. The Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Prince of Princes. And uh, stopped the regular sacrifice at the temple which the Persians had restored in Judea. He stops it, tries to sacrifice a pig on the altar... Uh, sacrificing a pig to Zeus, and that sparks up the Maccabean revolt. And then after that, after finally they, they get the victory and everything, and Antiochus Epiphanes, it says um, that he will die, right? But by no human hand. Well, historically speaking, or tradition has it that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, went insane in a Persian campaign trying to defeat more of the remnants of the Persian Empire. Remember in chapter 7 here it says that the these four kingdoms will arise in the, the dark one. The last kingdom is going to be utterly destroyed but the other kingdoms will kind of persevere for a while. Well Persia didn't just go away just because the Greeks had their way. Just because the Greeks won for a while. Persia came back. There was the Sassanid Empire and the Persians were a thorn in the side of Rome for a long time. But in general, chapter 8 is basically pretty easy to understand. We do ask the question, though, when, uh, when we see Gabriel here speaking, he says, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. He's not talking about the end of days. That's already been discussed in chapter 7. There will be an end of days. There will be a judgment day where Christ himself, the Son of Man, comes out and rescues us. Rescues us from this corrupt world. This is talking about the end to the offenses against the people of Judah. The offenses here where the morning and evening sacrifice are no longer permitted. Now, but if you're wondering why that is the case... Um, Antiochus Epiphanes was continuing Alexander's uh, Hellenization campaign. Alexander the Great had the dream of owning the world, but he also wanted it to be a Greek world. So he spread the Greek language absolutely everywhere. He had everybody speaking Greek. He introduced philosophy and pagan worship to all these other different regions and tried to replace their gods with, well, his gods. And in Judah, where there is only one God that the people worship, well, Antiochus took great offense to that and banned the worship of the one true God. So people were underground for a while, doing their best to worship God, but until Antiochus tried to sacrifice a pig to Zeus, they were in hiding for 2,300 days, according to Daniel chapter 8. But hopefully that makes it a lot easier to understand. This chapter came true and was fulfilled in full. Now some modern scholars try to say that this means Daniel was uh, 
oh, clearly Daniel was writing in 250 BC or something, or right around the time of the Maccabean revolt. There, this can't have been. But as Christians, we confess, no, this is prophecy. Prophecy comes true. Deal with it. Daniel wrote this. This is a holy prophet of God telling us exactly what would happen during the time of the Maccabean revolt. And we praise God for it. So that's it for today. We'll uh, get into some more of the, what we might call, hard prophecy. Fourth telling is the main job of a prophet. They speak on behalf of God as his spokesman. But Daniel is very much concerned with foretelling what is the future of things to come for his original audience and for us. But within that, keep in mind that within all the foretelling in the Bible, all the future, the oracles that tell us what will happen, there's still foretelling in that. The so what of it. Hope in God. He will deliver us from the evils of this world. He will come and win. It's going to be amazing. So with that, take courage. Take comfort in knowing that our God, who has promised all these things and who controls the entirety of the flow of history, um, the main point of the narrative chapters of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, is that God is in charge. And so here, he is reemphasizing that he will still be in charge in the future. Amen and amen. Amen.